Chapter Thirty of the Breaking Point by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. David was enjoying his holiday. He lay in bed most of the morning, making the most of his one after-breakfast cigar, and surrounded by newspaper and magazines. He had made friends of the waiter who brought his breakfast, and of the little chambermaid who looked after his room, and such conversations as this would follow. "'Well, Nellie,' he would say, "'and did you go to the dance on the pier last night?' "'Oh, yes, doctor.' "'Your gentleman friend showed up all right, then?' Oh, yes. He didn't telephone because he was on a job out of town. Here perhaps David would lower his voice, for Lucy was never far away. Did you wear the flowers? Yes, violets. I put one away to remember you by. It was funny at first. I wouldn't tell him who gave them to me. David would chuckle delightedly. That's right, he would say. Keep him guessing, the young rascal. We men are kittle-cattle, Nellie, kittle-cattle. Even the valet unbent to him, and inquired if the doctor needed a man at home to look after him in his clothes. David was enormously tickled. "'Well,' he said with a twinkle in his eye, "'I'll tell you how I manage now, and then you'll see. When I want my trousers pressed, I send them downstairs, and then I wait in my bathroom until they come back. I'm a trifle better off for boots, but you'd have to knock Mike, my hired man, unconscious, before he'd let you touch them.' The valet grinned understandingly. "'Of course, as my nephew,' David went on, a little note of pride in his voice. "'He's become engaged recently, and I notice he's bought some clothes. But still, I don't think even he will want anybody to hold his trousers while he gets into them.' David chuckled over that for a long time after the valet had gone. He was quite happy and contented. He spent all afternoon in a roller-chair, conversing affably with the man who pushed him, and now and then when Lucy was out of sight, getting out and stretching his legs. He picked up lost children and lonely dogs, and tried his eye in a shooting-gallery, and had hard work keeping off the roller-coasters and out of the sea. Then one day, when he had been gone some time, he was astonished on entering his hotel to find Harrison Miller sitting in the lobby. David beamed with surprise and pleasure. "'You old humbug,' he said, "'often a jaunt, after all, and the contempt of you when I was shipped here.' Harrison Miller was constrained and uncomfortable. He had meant to see Lucy first. She was a sensible woman, and she would know just what David could stand, or could not. But David did not notice his constraint, took him to his room, made him admire the ocean view, gave him a cigar, and then sat down across from him, beaming and hospitable. "'Suffering crimus, Miller,' he said. "'I didn't know I was homesick until I saw you. Well, how's everything? Dick's letters haven't been much, and we haven't had any for several days.' Harrison Miller cleared his throat. He knew that David had not been told of Jim Wheeler's death, but that Lucy knew. He knew, too, from Walter Wheeler, that David did not know that Dick had gone west. Did Lucy know that or not? Probably, yes. But he considered the entire benevolent conspiracy an absurdity and a mistake. It was making him uncomfortable, and most of his life had been devoted to being comfortable. He decided to temporize. "'Things are about the same,' he said. "'They're going to pave Chisholm Street. And your Mike knocked down the night watchman last week. I got him off with a fine.' "'I hope he hasn't been in my cellar. He's got a weakness, but then—' How's Dick? Not overworking? No, he's all right. 
But David was no man's fool. He began to see something strange in Harrison's manner, and he bent forward in his chair. "'Look here, Harrison,' he said. "'There's something the matter with you. You've got something on your mind.' "'Well, I haven't, I haven't. I'd like to see Lucy, David, if she's about.' "'Lucy's gadding. You can tell me if you can her. What is it? Is it about Dick?' "'In a way, yes.' "'He's not sick?' "'No, he's all right, as far as I know. I guess I'd better tell you, David.' Walter Wheeler has got some sort of a bee in his bonnet, and he got me to come on. Dick was pretty tired, and, well, one or two things happened to worry him. One was that Jim Wheeler, you'll get this sooner or later, was in an automobile accident, and it did for him. David had lost some of his ruddy color. It was a moment before he spoke. Poor Jim, he said hoarsely. He was a good boy, only full of life. It will be hard on the family. Yes, Harrison Miller said simply. But David was resentful, too. When his friends were in trouble, he wanted to know about it. He was somewhat indignant and not a little hurt. But he soon reverted to Dick. I'll go back and send him off for a rest, he said. I'm as good as I'll ever be, and the boy's tired. What's the bee in Wheeler's bonnet? Look here, David, you know your own business best and Wheeler didn't feel at liberty to tell me very much, but he seemed to think you were the only one who could tell us certain things. He'd have come himself, but it's not easy for him to leave the family just now. Dick went away just after Jim's funeral. He left a young chap named Reynolds in his place, and, I believe, in order not to worry you, some letters to be mailed at intervals. "'Went where?' David asked in a terrible voice. To a town called Narada in Wyoming, near his old home somewhere. And the Wheelers haven't heard anything from him since the day he got there. That's three weeks ago. He wrote Elizabeth the night he got there, and wired her at the same time. There's been nothing since. David was gripping the arms of his chair with both hands, but he forced himself to calmness. I'll go to Narada at once, he said. Get a timetable, Harrison, and ring for the valet. Not on your life you won't. I'm here to do that when I've got something to go on. Wheeler thought you might have heard from him. If you hadn't, I was to get all the information I could and then start. Elizabeth's almost crazy. We wired the chief of police of Narada yesterday. Yes, David said thickly. Trust your friends to make every damned mistake possible. You've set the whole pack on his trail. And then he fell back in his chair and gasped. Open the window. When Lucy came in, a half-hour later, she found David on his bed with the hotel doctor beside him, and Harrison Miller in the room. David was fighting for breath, but he was conscious and very calm. He looked up at her and spoke slowly and distinctly. "'They've got Dick, Lucy,' he said. He looked aged and pinched and entirely hopeless. Even after his heart had quieted down, and he lay still among his pillows, he gave no evidence of his old fighting spirit. He lay with his eyes shut, relaxed and passive. He had done his best, and he had failed. It was out of his hands now, and in the hands of God. Once, as he lay there, he prayed. He said that he had failed, and that now he was too old and weak to fight. That God would have to take it on, and do the best he could. But he added that if God did not save Dick, and bring him back to happiness, that he, David, was through. 
Toward morning he wakened from a light sleep. The door into Lucy's room was open, and a dim light was burning beyond it. David called her, and by her immediate response he knew she had not been sleeping. "'Yes, David,' she said, and came padding in, in her bedroom slippers and wadded dressing-gown, a tragic figure of apprehension, determinedly smiling. "'What do you want?' "'Sit down, Lucy.' When she had done so, he put out his hand, fumbling for hers. She was touched and alarmed, for it was a long while since there had been any open demonstration of affection between them. David was silent for a time, absorbed in thought. Then, "'I'm not in very good shape, Lucy. I suppose you know that. This old pump of mine has sprung a leak or something. I don't want you to worry if anything happens. I've come to the time when I've got a good many over there, and it will be like going home." Lucy nodded. Her chin quivered. She smoothed his hand with its high, twisted veins. "'I know, David,' she said, mother and father, and Henry, and a good many friends. But I need you, too. You're all I have now that Dick—' "'That's why I called you. If I can get out there, I'll go, and I'll put up a fight that will make them wish they'd never started anything. But if I can't, if I—' She felt his fingers tighten on her hand. "'If Hattie Thorwald is still living, we'll put her on the stand. If I can't go for any reason, I want you to see that she is called. And you know where Henry's statement is?' "'In your box, isn't it?' "'Yes. Have the statement read first, and then have her call to corroborate it. Tell the story I have told you, or—no, I'll dictate it to you in the morning, and sign it before witnesses. Jake and Bill will testify, too." He felt easier in his mind after that. He had marshaled his forces and begun his preparations for battle. He felt less apprehension now, in case he fell asleep, to waken among those he had loved long since and lost a while. After a few moments his eyes closed, and Lucy went back to her bed and crawled into it. It was, however, Harrison Miller who took the statement that morning. Lucy's cramped old hand wrote too slowly for David's impatience. Harrison Miller took it on hotel stationery, covering the carefully numbered pages with his neat copperplate writing. He wrote with an impassive face, but with intense interest, for by that time he knew Dick's story. Never in his orderly bachelor life of daily papers and a flower garden and political economy at night had he been so close to the passions of men, to love and hate, and the disorder they brought with them. End of chapter 30